Good morning. Nine years ago, uh, November 2008, my dear friend, Glide colleague, out proud lesbian mom, Rebecca Weinreich, invited me on behalf of her then 11-year-old daughter, Shoshana, to be Shoshi's adult male escort to the special holiday cotillion at the Wilshire Ebell Club in Hancock Park in Los Angeles. Not having an adult handy of the opposite gender, and I like to think my background as a professional dancer kind of bumped me to the top of the list. How did I respond? I was over the moon on so many levels. I was honored, of course, to have been asked, but I had attended cotillion myself in Long Beach, where I grew up, in the fifth and sixth grades. Fifth grade was square dancing, sixth grade was ballroom dancing. My mom didn't want to send me at first when my Aunt Gloria invited me to join my cousin Randy's school group. Oh, you'll quit that just like you did the piano, she said. Oh, no, Mom, this is different. You'll see. Never quite like the other children. This was the era of Vietnam and the Beatles and the Beach Boys, and I, on the other hand, lived to cha-cha. A chubby little waltzing anachronism. And it was quite the social liability, too. If anybody at my school found out that I went, or what's more, that I loved it, I might as well just join the witness protection program that changed schools. You see, we live in all kinds of closets. Mine was a split level. How did I respond? I was so thrilled to have this opportunity to revisit this very sweet memory from my past. So Becky made a date for her and Shoshi to come over to the house, for Shoshi to give me the lowdown on what was expected of me and to teach me the basic dance steps she had learned. First off, Michael, she said, you've got to wear a suit. Oh, God, I don't have a suit. Becky assured me that a jacket and tie would be fine and that Shoshi wasn't yet well-versed in the finer distinctions of menswear. So she proceeded to show me her basic waltz and foxtrot steps, and I, I told her, look, girl, I can teach you a routine. We can clear the floor here. Not realizing that wouldn't be tops on the agenda for an 11-year-old girl. So sadly, there would be no one-armed lifts at this particular cotillion. It's not about you, Michael. The big day arrives. I race home from work. I get showered. I change into my jacket and tie, and I head over to the Wilshire Ebell. And within moments of even parking my car, I was slapped awake into another reality that had layers of meaning that were not all sweetness and light for me. There I was feeling so conspicuously less than in my light khakis and my olive shirt and my chocolate blazer. And I see these men pull up in these shiny BMWs and Mercedes and they emerge in these sleek, beautifully tailored suits. Corporate and lawyer types, I presumed, rushing over from their offices in Century City or downtown, racing to meet their beautifully turned out wives and their lovely children to whom they'd given the best of everything. Successful, heterosexual. They had done life the right way. To put my feelings of insecurity into a kind of context, a few weeks earlier I had found out in the most unceremonious way imaginable that I was to be laid off from my job at the time as the palliative care chaplain at the Santa Monica UCLA Hospital, a job that didn't pay enough to feed me as it was. And a week before that, the voters of California passed Proposition 8, largely through the success of relentless television advertising that terrorized enough voters with the unthinkable possibility that the worst thing that could happen to your child would be that she finds out in school that I even existed. I was not feeling on top of the world. 
insiders and outsiders. Here it was at the Wilshire Ebel. I remembered the dress code handed down to me some 40 years earlier, and it was the same thing, suit or jacket and tie. And I didn't have a suit then either. My mom went to Unimart, the forerunner to stores like Target, and she bought me a shiny polyester wide whale corduroy olive green sport jacket with these plastic buttons made to look like real leather. I hated it, especially the buttons. I knew then that it wouldn't pass muster with some of those Mormon boys at Cotillion who, like those lawyers, looked like they were born in their suits. <laughs> but then I see the kids start to arrive, the same prototypes to adolescents as 40 years earlier. There were those who looked so at ease and confident, eager to show off their new clothes and gossip with their friends and talk about holiday plans. And then there were those who looked like they'd rather be going to their dog's funeral. <laughs> but one glorious contrast in 1964, though, was the sea of faces. The room looked like Los Angeles. There were Asian faces and Latino faces and African-American faces. One of Thurgood Marshall's own great-grandnieces was there at a cotillion in Hancock Park a neighborhood in which not too long ago he couldn't have purchased a home as an African-American. And my friend Becky, an out fiercely proud lesbian mom and her daughter, things can change, you know. And then the dancing began. What fun. I especially love looking at some of the little boys who were a good two feet shorter than their partners, and they somehow had intuited that this sport of foxtrotting is all about who can take the biggest steps. And they're not quite sure why they're even playing music in the first place. But they're so damned earnest about it. And there I am, dancing with Shoshana, and I'm feeling the oddest mix of pride and wonder. And I'm lost in this reverie of nostalgia, amazement, and of feeling less than. I look across the room and I spy the most beautiful little Latino boy, dressed in a jacket two sizes too big, dancing with his proud mom, who at five feet tall is still a good head taller than her boy, dressed in what I'm sure is her finest, short sleeve white knit top and navy blue pants, right next to the most elegant, glamorous evening dresses, cocktail dresses, high heels and gloves. That was one multi-layered picture, I have to say, to this little gay mama's boy in the shiny corduroy jacket. Kind of exquisite, actually. Still, I was hopelessly short-sighted to not have foreseen what a minefield this sweet little cotillion could be. This was the universe in which I felt the most at ease and confident at 11. And now at 54, I'm somehow an outsider in my own universe? What's up with that? Can we be the insider and the outsider at the same time? And the whole intention of a cotillion is kind of a two-edged sword, isn't it? Teaching a kind of what? Manners and grace and civility and confidence and poise. For what? So that we can go through life with manners and grace and civility and confidence and poise. And that's a good thing, right? But is there also buried in there an agenda to step up in class, to greater access to power and privilege, all the while solidifying and confirming this heteronormative gender-specific universe? Even Becky shared with me her hesitation at sending Shoshana in the first place. When she heard white gloves, to her white gloves had historically meant no Jews allowed. Not to mention all this gender-specific stuff and this heteronormative stuff. Isn't it ironic that that is the universe in which I felt the most at ease as an 11-year-old gay boy? 
ballroom dancing and these prescribed gender roles with little girls. And just look at all the dimensions of insider-outsider status evident at this sweet little cotillion. There's race and class and gender, sexual orientation, religion. There's a big old Christmas tree in the middle of the ballroom. But we close the party with everyone dancing the horror in a big circle. <laughs> what a relief. There's dance ability, even though too much dance ability for a little boy is not exactly a status builder, let me tell you. And there's the whole reason I was even invited in the first place. Family structures. Hell, I just wanted to go to a party. This is so typical of what I do. Still, the whole experience got me thinking in a deeper way about these feelings of being the insider and being the outsider and where such feelings intersect with matters of faith. We look around the world. We don't have to look too far to see how many faith systems are built on the idea of us and them. We're inside, you're out. Defined by it, in fact. I am so proud of our UU tradition in which at least we proclaim the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Do we always succeed in manifesting that? Certainly not. I know that I don't. And in speaking spiritually, we can speak in a horizontal plane. That is, where do I see my connectedness to my place among people and things here in the physical world? But for many, that spiritual relationship is a vertical one between myself and that which is beyond the physical, between myself and any notion of God, universe, higher power, nature. Speaking for my own journey and so many of the lives of the patients I walk beside, that vertical relationship can be fraught with just as many struggles of insider-outsider status as if it were the dance floor at the Wilshire Ebell. In religious language, it might sound like, am I still within God's grace or have I somehow fallen from grace? Why haven't my prayers been answered? In secular language, the question might be, do I fit in? Do I belong? Am I enough? It's the same question, just a slightly different context and vocabulary. Over my years as a chaplain, I have certainly met my fair share of folks who are quite confident of their insider relationship in that vertical relationship. A number of years ago when I began as an intern, I was assigned to the liver transplant unit at UCLA, and I was making rounds one afternoon. I went in to introduce myself to Earl. Earl was, for this floor in particular, uncharacteristically chipper and bright-eyed. I introduced myself as a chaplain, and he responded right away, Yes, please, chaplain. I happen to be a, a Baptist pastor myself. I would simply relish the opportunity to dialogue with fellow clergy. Oh, brother. Here we go, quiz time. So I pull up a chair and I sit down. So tell me, Earl, what's going on? Chaplain, I couldn't be better. I was so sick, I almost died. But you know what? The Lord blessed me with a new liver and now I'm going to be just fine. Isn't it a miracle? You see, Chaplain, prayer works and the Lord blesses and keeps his own. Well, this just pissed me off. <laughs> Earl and his theology... It's not very chaplain-like of, of me, I admit, but I just could not help myself. Earl, I'm thrilled that you get this second chance of life. I truly am. And yes, indeed, these transplants are a miracle. But I have to ask you, Earl, what about the person who died and gave you that liver? Where do you suppose the blessing is in this for him or for her? His smile flattened out a bit perhaps forgetting for a moment that that liver wasn't sent up from the pharmacy. 
Well, I'm sure I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know if that person was even saved or not. It seems his insider status with the Lord is inextricably linked with the outsider status of his poor, unfortunate donor. Walt, a cancer patient, was the quintessential self-described, self-made man. Rough and tumble beginnings, Irish Catholic, grew to amass millions in the defense and oil industry and not a bit shy in telling me how many millions we were talking and no moral struggle at all with how he made that profit. Because, Michael, I just used the gifts God gave me, that's all any of us has to do. It was as if in his mind his financial success were proof of his favor with God. He had done it the right way, by himself and by the world and by God, insider all the way. It was the American capitalist success story as theology. And like Earl, Walt had this perfect match between his inner reality, his inner beliefs and theology, and his outer world and circumstance, as if one proved the other in some airtight kind of case. And it makes me wonder, can we even still call it faith when there is that kind of proof, that kind of certainty, if you will? To me, faith is more in the realm of reaching for, aspiring to that which may be beyond our grasp, maybe even be beyond our language. I don't know. I have certainly met countless folks on the other side who do not understand why God has not saved them from horrific loss, suffering, even death, has not answered their prayers, why they are the spiritual outsiders, as it were, particularly when a faith system that kept them afloat their whole lives told them something quite different. Gary presented the most confounding conflation of all these ideas. It was my first unit of internship and one of my first overnight on-call shifts at the hospital. A veritable grab bag of adventure, let me tell you. Every time that pager went off, waking you from a not-so-sound sleep, it was late one Sunday night, and the pager went off, and I was summoned up to Gary's floor on the 10th floor, hematology, oncology. Gary was scheduled to have a bone marrow transplant the next day and was feeling quite distressed about it, and the nurse thought he might benefit from a conversation with the chaplain. Gary was a devout fundamentalist Christian, and when he found out that I was neither a fundamentalist nor a Christian, he threw both of his arms in the air with this incredulous kind of disgust as if I might be contagious or something. <laughs> said, what? You're not a Christian? I can't talk to you. I've got nothing to say to you. What's with this hospital hiring a chaplain who isn't a Christian? Heaven help me if he knew I were gay. <laughs> Ever the earnest chaplain and student, I hung in there for close to an hour, naively or perhaps arrogantly thinking I could tease apart his resistance to having a conversation with me. The guy was suffering. He was so scared and anxious and angry, and I was it for somebody to talk to. So the thing is, Michael, I was told to have this transplant six months ago, and I told the doctors no. I said, the Lord's going to heal me. And when he does, I'm going to come back here and tell you, I told you so. And if he doesn't, in six months' time, I'll come back and I'll have the transplant, and you can tell me, I told you so. So here we are, six months later, and my transplant is tomorrow. Despite his antipathy for me, I felt this compassionate kind of affinity for Gary because several times in my life I have taken what would appear to be reckless leaps of faith that have flown in the face of conventional wisdom and have not turned out the way I would have hoped. 
This journey into chaplaincy, not the least among them. Several times in my life, my faith has collapsed. My understanding, such as it was, about anything about the nature of life, God, the universe, just collapsed. I've had to rebuild. I do know what it's like to put all of your eggs in one basket and to drop the basket. I thought that perhaps on that page, Gary and I could meet. So Gary, when the Lord chose not to heal you, did you feel what? Betrayed or angry or abandoned? I've never felt any of those things. Why would I? That's the Lord's business. The fact is my faith wasn't strong enough to be healed. And so the Lord had this in mind for me, gesturing to all the pumps and tubes and hoses. doesn't bother me in the slightest. I'll find out when I get to heaven. I wasn't buying any of it. The guy was so angry. He was so scared. He was so anxious. But it had been close to an hour, and I had given all I had to give. But I did think we had opened the door just the teeniest bit and so I said, Gary, before I go, would you maybe like to say a blessing or, or prayer together before the big day tomorrow? Again, his hand shot up in the air. I can't pray with you. I could pray for you, but I can't pray with you. How could I? You're not a Christian. And so I left. And I made this long walk down that empty corridor back to the elevators, feeling so dejected and angry and sad wondering what the hell was I thinking in tackling this chaplaincy thing in the first place. Definitely an outsider. And there's Gary in his hospital room alone, having his own spiritual crisis of the vertical variety. The Lord chose not to heal him after all. And he's in denial about it. What's more, he alienated the one hand that was there for him in the darkness that maybe could have connected him and maybe only horizontally and maybe only for a moment. Still, there's something tragic in that to me. But it seems his attachment to his status as a Christian guaranteed his status alone in that bed, waiting for a transplant six months overdue. Now, for many of us, particularly you use, it might be tempting to judge Gary, dismiss him or his suffering as somehow self-imposed, as divisive, for some maybe even as ridiculous. But before you do, I invite you to consider a time when your own faith collapsed. Maybe not the vertical variety. What about the horizontal variety? What about faith in our own abilities, our jobs, our careers, our relationships? What about our faith in our marriages, our children, our friends? These days, what about our faith in the idea that if you work hard, do your, the right thing, keep your head down, save your money, everything's going to turn out okay? Of late, I, like so many of us, have had to look at my faith in the democratic process. It's one of our core principles. As much as I and anyone here would say they believe in democracy, even going back nine years, how did I and so many of us feel to wake up November 5th, 2008, to hear Proposition 8 passed? Easily. What a soup of feelings that stirred up for me that day particularly in tandem with news of the first African-American being elected president. I think the essential feeling for me that day was that of having been bullied by the masses, evoking this very old and familiar feeling of having been bullied as that sissy boy on the playground. The same waltzing anachronism who now found himself on the dance floor at the Wilshire Ebell. Has any of us not felt like the outsider when looking through that lens. And what, if anything, does that outsider perspective offer us? 
Jane Wagner, who wrote and created all of Lily Tomlin's brilliant characters and material ages ago, posited through her character, Trudy the Bag Lady, after all, what is reality anyway? Nothing but a collective hunch. As we are in that outsider position, we step outside of that collective hunch we call reality. As we move or are moved into that outsider position, it might be the only opportunity we ever have to truly reevaluate and assess everything we have held to be true and dear and sacred. In the Native American tradition, there's the concept of the two-spirited being. One is seen as having both the male and female in the same body, somebody we might call gay or transgender. That person is often seen as having a gift, a vision, not narrowly constrained by the perspective of one gender or another. They're often seen as healers and shamans, not outcasts at all. Well, all of that insight offered to the outsider is wonderful, isn't it? But it's also lonely and painful. And by contrast, to feel that I belong to my place in the world, to my job, my community, my family, my church community, or in a vertical sense that I'm held lovingly in the embrace of God's arms, well, that's as warm and cozy as a big comfy chair by the fire. Who doesn't want that feeling all the time? But from what I observe, not too many of us are allowed to sit by the fire forever. So I would ask myself, can I learn to live in holding the tension between the two and move with a little more grace between the warmth of the fire and the cold wind outside? Even as life beckons me back inside, only to show me the door a few moments later, might I even catch a glimpse of a larger reality in which this whole notion of insiders and outsiders is an illusion that both the warmth of the fire and the cold wind outside are both illusions of separation, that there really exists anything other than the oneness of all life. Might my, my pursuit of the coziness even be a kind of trap, luring me into this pursuit of approval and affection outside of myself? Might I discover a knowingness deep in my bones, as David White suggests in that beautiful poem, that I belong to that aloneness as I belong to my life. So much of all this might just be a story that we're making up about ourselves and each other, moment to moment, changeable as the wind, because there I was feeling so less than in my khaki pants, absolutely like the loser of the world, having been laid off from my job, beaten up by the voters of California, feeling like I'm 11 and I'm 54 in the same moment, and actually entertaining the thought, geez, if I only had a suit. And then, a couple days after the cotillion, I got this card in the mail from Shoshana. Dear Michael, thank you for dancing with me at the cotillion. I really loved your colorful tie. I hope that you enjoyed yourself. I also loved your brown and tan suit. <laughs> See you soon. So be it. <laughs>